subscribe to the inside story. Subscribe to Belfast Telegraph Premium. For just £3 a month, get unlimited digital access that takes you behind the headlines with exclusive interviews, exposés, investigations and more. Sign up today at belfasttelegraph.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Cancel any time. T's and C's apply. Just a heads up that this episode contains themes and strong language that some listeners may find upsetting. Previously, and I'm not here to hurt you. So I think in that moment, something unconsciously said, okay. I, I knew there was something different about this one. They had waited some time to, to catch me. So I was in a cell waiting for a doctor um, in heavy withdrawal. Episode four, The Sentence. Bank of Ireland on Dublin's Bagot Street, Bagot Street was a scene of a robbery earlier today. John pleaded guilty to 13 counts of robbery, one count of attempted robbery and 14 counts of possessing an imitation firearm. They are asking anyone who was in the vicinity, the vicinity of the National Irish Bank. He also pleaded guilty to two further counts of robbery, one at a newsagent's and one at another bank in December 2004. The man is being detained at Donnybrook Garda Station. Station. While researching John's case, the name of one police officer stood out, Garda Paul Moody. A serving Garda who pleaded guilty to the coercive control of a woman with cancer has been sentenced to three and a quarter years in prison. A Garda for over 20 years, Paul Moody swore an oath to uphold the law, the constitution and the dignity and human rights of all people. An oath he broke in the most egregious fashion when over a three-year period he tortured and terrorised a woman with stage four cancer. Records show he gave evidence at a sentence hearing telling the judge that John O'Hegarty did not use the usual foul or abusive language heard at bank robberies. Sometimes he never spoke a word. He just showed the gun and gave his bag to the teller, Moody told the court. Paul uh, was the guard that apprehended me, arrested me, outside um, the bank in Ranla. So he would have been the guard that... I first encountered them via his uh, his revolver stuck in the back of my my my, my head. Um, he later became, I suppose, the primary guard dealing with my case. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time um, with him in interview rooms and 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 developed a, a relationship as you would, um, albeit a very very odd one. So, what did you think when you heard that? He is now in jail serving a three-year sentence for course of control. My initial reaction when I saw it in the paper um, was anger. Anger at the idea that he was representative of people whom were there as, as guardians. Uh, you know, many a time over an interview table, there was the turn of the head and the kind of, oh, Jesus, John, look what you've done now. And so there was, there was, there was a judgment being made all the time, okay? And I was to feel... Very lucky, you know, that 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 I'd been given his attention, mm. that he he'd been good enough to give me his attention. Um, I could feel there was more behind that. I could see how he was controlling. He 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 could manipulate situations as as part of that as part of that dynamic of good cop bad cop. You know, he was able to very much play up on that, and he did. He did. You know, um, he was a big personality. He's going to do much less time than you did in prison. But are you familiar with what regime he's probably living? 
I'm sure he's 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 probably um, living the life. Yeah, uh, as far as I'm aware, for to believe what we we hear, and you know, he's on, he's on a landing with some of his his, his former colleagues. Um, however, I, I I think yeah, it doesn't come as any surprise to me. Certainly, um, and perhaps to a lot of people that he's um, he's certainly not serving hard time. I would have thought that life in prison would be more difficult for a former Garda than a mm. bank robber, for example. Sure, if you were to throw him out into the yard with the rest of the, the general pop, yeah, then it would. But he, that's not going to happen to him. He's going to be kept up in a nice little clean landing, probably all on his own with a, a few other lads, and let out at certain times. And I, I can verify, you know, how they are treated, and they are treated very differently. So on, on both counts, one primarily because he's a guard, even though he's disgraced and he's all these things, it, it doesn't matter. Moody's evidence was a factor in John getting four years in prison. But the director of public prosecutions felt this punishment was too lenient and appealed. On the 28th day, the last day in which they have to appeal the case, they did appeal it. That was a real, OK, they're, they're coming after me. The sentence was tripled to 12 years which in Ireland is an extremely lengthy time behind bars for robbery. In real terms, though, it would mean eight years in jail with some time off for good behaviour. That was a very low point, yeah. Very low point. It took some time to get over that, yeah. And of course, when you go into prison, you become a number. So 33293 is your, is your new identity. You are stripped of everything from your, from your rings to jewellery to your clothing to your liberties to... 33293. 293, yeah. You remember it off by heart? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to forget that. Um, it's written on everything. And there's an acceptance period that you have to go through um, where, you know, for the first few months you're in complete denial, obviously, of your situation um, in some weird half state of believing that the door will open at any moment and somebody will tell you that it's all been a big mistake. Um, you can go home, you know. How did you fit in coming from the background that you did? I fitted in okay. At the time, I felt I was I stood out like a sore thumb. I think I I was left alone largely because much like everybody else that had encountered me to that point, Kevin, I suppose people didn't know what to make of me. So first of all, when people come to prison, unless they're in for something specific, it's gang related or whatever, you, people try to figure out who is this guy? They want to know who you are. So they look in the paper. So they, they know about you before you come in. Before I got into Mount Joy, people knew about who I was. And for that reason, they're not really interested in, in you anymore. They kind of think, okay, he's, he's in here for this. They call them OCDs or ODCs rather. Ordinary decent criminals. If you're in that bracket and you keep your head down, by an RG, you're going to be okay. Did you fear for your safety though at any point? You, of course you do, of course you do. You sleep with one eye open <laughs> for a lot of the time. Um, you're sharing cells with, could be anybody. People can be put into a cell late at night. Um, I've been in cells with some very, I don't know, disturbed characters, yeah. But you develop uh, an ability to listen to your instincts. You're, you're, you're very alert in prison. It's an environment that has its own rules, and once you get to know the rules, you'll do okay but you have to get to know them. Where are you in your battle with drugs at this point? When I'd gone into Clover Hill, I set about trying to detox from methadone. 
I detox far too quickly. That process uh, was set back again by the, 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 the resentencing. I relapsed in the prison. How do you relapse in prison? Uh, very easy. Probably easier than you would in the real world. Prison is, is as, as everybody knows, it's, it's full of drugs. It's, it's not hard to find. You only have to go a couple of feet, quite literally. It's a microcosm. So you have all the structures you'd have. You'd have people that run things. You have people that get things. You have people that... But you also have a currency. And the currency isn't the US dollar. It's heroin. Um, so if you can acquire heroin, you can buy anything. So what happened? I went through perhaps a year and a half of an addiction in prison. And out of a, <clears throat> a prison like Wheatfield with 20 odd units or wings, only one of them was a drug-free unit. Other than that, you're surrounded by them. So any notion of trying to get drug-free in prison is, is, is almost laughable, actually. But you did? I did, yeah, I did. John spent most of his sentence in Dublin's Wheatfield Prison, but at times he was housed in the city's Mount Joy Jail, which is ironically known by dubs as the Joy. It lived up to uh, all expectations. A horrible place. When I was there, they were still, um, you know, going through the practice of slopping out. So you'd, you'd have, you know, guys going in and ditching all their their their, their pots first thing in the morning. So if, a couple of times throughout the day, the the, the place literally. Um, would burn your, your back of your nose if you, if, you, if you take a breath in. John was always keen to get back to Wheatfield, where he felt more comfortable. Every time that door would open, every couple of hours, I'd ask them, um, any, any news on getting back to, to Wheatfield? Or I, I must have pushed them a bit too far, but they ended up uh, escorting me out of the cell. I thought I was being finally brought to a, a prison van and uh, I was escorted out the, the, the front of Mount Joy and I was, I was brought in next door and uh, promptly escorted up to a, a padded cell where I spent the next couple of days. A padded cell? Mm. Describe the cell. About the size of this, this room um, that we're sitting in at the moment, so oh, 15 foot by 10. The one thing that stood out about, about it for me was, uh, it was the only place that... Um, it had a view out onto the city and the back of um, the North Circular, banks of the Royal Canal, as the, the song goes, you know. So you could see you could see out into it and you could see people doing their, their going about their business, their daily business. It's quite a hard hit, yeah, because you can you kind of accept being locked up easier um, when there's there's nothing to see outside your your vision, if you know what I mean. But when you can look out and you can see the world moving on. It's, it's a tough one. When I was put into the cell, the TV was on. Um, the TV in, 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 in a lot of cells like that um, are designed so that, that you, you can't adjust them, you can't touch them, they're behind the uh, plexiglass. The volume on the television was, was so high that the, the, the speaker was distorting. So yeah, I was stuck in the padded cell with uh, a TV on full volume for, for a long, long time. I managed to get them to come in and after banging on the door repeatedly for hours, I managed to um, get a prison officer to come in and change what I thought was lower the TV, but he in fact changed the channel oh, and went back in. Consider this tribunal false tribunal. The trial of Slobodan Milosevic from The Hague. It is illegal being not appointed by 
The Irish Prison Service told us they do have what are called special observation cells. They can only be used when a prisoner poses an immediate threat of serious harm to themselves or others, and this must be based on a clinical risk assessment. The presenting behaviour must be directly linked to a health issue and not a demonstration of disruptive or challenging behaviour or indeed a grievance with a prison officer. You spoke before about how ending up in jail actually helped you get to know your father better. Mm-hmm. What did you talk about on his visits into prison? When people come in to visit you in prison, it's, it's like we, we'd have a conversation now, we'd ask about how things are going and all the, the gossip, as, as we say. But as time goes past, um, you start becoming reflective on why you're there. In, in this case, my parents or my father's um, concerns for me, both with my addiction, with my, you know, placement in prison, um, what I was doing, how I was, the lack of communication, etc. Well, I think once his concerns became allayed a little bit, um, we found time to actually connect. You talk about emotions and emotions around visits, but emotions around being in prison, around minding your own business to stay safe effectively. But you did hit a very low point while you were in there. I had spent a lot of time after I arrived in Wheatfield trying to access the drug-free unit. I'd come off methadone. I felt the drug-free unit not only was a better better unit, generally a better standard of, of life on it, but also it was, it was by and large drug-free. And I eventually got onto the landing. However, I had no... I don't support detoxing. And I think I hadn't finished that process correctly. And I think I was so very raw emotionally. And I think once everything had left the system, you're suddenly finding yourself the, a dose of reality. Irish prisons are grim. They have a history of being overcrowded and under-resourced. It's only in the last decade that the practice known as slopping out, urinating and defecating in buckets, was actually ended. And there were upward of 4,000 criminals in Irish jails at any one time. Even now... Some are forced to sleep on mattresses on the ground. And while the prison service doesn't have an exact figure, research suggests that as many as 70% of people in custody have a history of drug or alcohol addiction. The Irish Prison Service told me that those with addiction continue their drug-seeking behaviour inside prison, notwithstanding the supports that are available to address their addiction, and drugs are rife inside. There are up to 1,500 seizures of cocaine, heroin, LSD and other drugs, you name it, in a single year. Nobody knows how much goes undetected. But the prison service did admit drug-free prisons will only be achievable when we have a drug-free society. Meanwhile, as John argues, support services are stretched. At the start of 2023, there were 1,300 inmates on the waiting list for psychological supports. 
some will end up waiting more than two years for an appointment because there is one psychologist for every 257 prisoners. I hit a low point, say one night. Um, I prepped myself for prepped myself for um, for finishing what I believed was a was a life that was causing others pain and causing myself pain. And I had a very long night. I had a very long night where I prepped buckets and I saved blades and um, very low, very low points, very low points. And how did you pull back from that? You you try to f- understand and find meaning as to why you are in that position. Some months in, I came to realise that, or believe that I I couldn't hit any any lower point in my life. Um, you know, you, you know, you're in prison. You're an addict. You're you've done X, Y, and Z. You've damaged relationships, all sorts of things. You, you know, how low can you go? Um, so if that's the the B end um, of everything, you you kind of well, I can't that can't be it. So there's got to be a reason I'm I'm here. Did you self harm? I didn't go ahead and self-harm, no. And was it just that one moment and then you were able to push past it? That was my dark night of the soul, yeah. Did you tell anybody about it? No. So you, don't talk, you don't talk about things like that in there, no. no. Um, or certainly I didn't. Strange irony, I was... I was I can't remember the, the timeline, but I would have been either training or I would have been before my work as a, as a smart in there. And yet I was going through my own hell. I think it was, in retrospect, it was necessary. It was it was part of a, a process. You think you've hit rock bottom and certainly as an addict, um, you'd, you say to yourself, oh, I, I've hit rock bottom and you've decided, you know, okay, things have got to get better from here on in. But I think... Um, you always have to be careful um, in in um, asserting to yourself, I've hit rock bottom. Um, I think that's something you have to feel. So yeah, you have to you have to you have to crawl your way back out of a pit. You're you're at the very bottom of a pit with barely any light at the top, and you have to get bloodied fingernails and and, and crawl up. Did you tell your parents about it? No. no. I mean, you went on to later work not necessarily as a counsellor but as a listener mm-hmm. for inmates who may be having similar thoughts as that was there nobody there for you at that time? I could have called a listener yeah unfortunately not everybody who's suicidal will call a listener who has su- suicidal thoughts and that's where the scheme really tried to 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 make it okay to talk about Things like suicide and suicidal thoughts. Um, at the time, I didn't feel it would help me. I felt it was going to bring more attention. I, as I said, it was a dark night of the self. Me, I guess it was a turning point. 
is this likely to be the first time that some people close to you will have heard then that you contemplated suicide? Quite possibly. Quite possibly, yeah. Do you think that will shock them? Maybe not, no. Um, you know, I suppose part of the trifecta of addiction, crime and prison, you know, somewhere in there is, is self-harm. So I, I guess people and people around me wouldn't be surprised to hear it, but they, they'll, they'll be upset to hear it, yeah, maybe. Did you think about those people at the time? Yes. Have you been in counselling yourself since that or seeing a therapist? I did. I was lucky because not everybody can access it. There's going to be quite, quite a long waiting list. Um, but again, an essential part of the the, the services provided by, by, by the prison, yeah. Are you still seeing somebody? No. Do you feel you don't need to anymore? No. Well, you can never, you, you, you always have to... Things are an ongoing process, but uh, no, I don't feel I need to see anybody. John often drifts for a few seconds before answering questions about his emotions. While he appears to be well, it's clear to me that he has to work hard at keeping himself grounded. Others have had to work hard too at coming to terms with his actions. While we continue our regular meetings, Amy Malloy has been able to track down somebody else who knows a lot about this story. We, we, we were in 141 Lower Bagger Street. John McNally was Roger Handy's business partner. A dapper estate agent with an incredibly friendly manner, we got on well and he welcomed me into his office for a chat about Roger and the day of the tragedy. Uh, the guy in the chemist shop who's still there, the fellow at the back with the glasses, mm. he's the guy who phoned the ambulance. Right. John, I met with John McNally. He actually had um, a lot of kind words to say about you, believe it or not. Okay, okay. Uh. He remembered the day of the accident. I grabbed him, you know. Yeah. So I don't mean grabbed him. That's but I know, yeah. That's an awful word to say. <laughs> I, I said, here, come here for a second. Yeah. And don't you move. Yeah, he had a lot of sympathy for you and he's followed your story through the years a little bit. Really? Um, okay. Saw that you went to prison from the papers and that. And uh, okay. he said he often wondered what happened to you. Um, like I, I, I followed it for a bit mm. and then it was so yeah. depressing I said look Times yeah he's a nice kid yeah, I no, thought he was a nice guy because yeah, no, when is. I told him I said don't move mm. he, he, did, he didn't run he stayed yeah. there you know like he could have fecked off my meeting with John McNally was extremely useful he confirmed many of the details that I wanted to clarify including his initial impression that Roger wasn't badly hurt Unfortunately, as you might have been able to tell from the audio quality, there was a problem with the original recording and we lost most of it. I was relieved though when John enthusiastically agreed to go through it all again for tape, but sadly he became unwell shortly afterwards and passed away in late January 2023. I did keep notes from that first conversation. It took place in the offices of McNally Handy on Pembroke Street in Dublin, just around the corner from where the accident happened. The first thing that struck me was the name on the door. It was still McNally Handy. John said he took great pride in the fact that he kept the Handy name on his company for all those years. The two men didn't know each other very well back in 1986 when John approached Roger and asked if he'd enter into a business partnership. 
He only gave him a few days to think about it and felt really flattered when he agreed. Together, they built a very successful business. Roger's career was on an upward trajectory at the time of the accident in 2002. He'd been travelling a bit for work and John reckoned his home life with Jane was very happy. In his opinion, it was a high point in Roger's life. Just before the accident, Roger had popped his head into John's office to say he was heading out. John believed he was going across the road to the shop for a bag of popcorn. John didn't actually see what happened, but ran downstairs after a receptionist called for help. He says there was a bit of a commotion and he asked where the cyclist was. He said John O'Hegarty looked shocked and asin-faced. He took a photocopy of his passport and ultimately, in his own words, dobbed him in. But John McNally genuinely didn't feel it was a big drama. He thought it was just one of those things until he went to visit Roger in hospital later that evening and discovered the situation had taken a turn. Roger's death came as a total shock to him. He said there was a huge crowd at the funeral. He was 56. Having heard from two of those impacted by John O'Hegarty's actions, Jane Handy and John McNally, I asked John again about a letter he previously told me he wrote while in prison. I believe I was in Clover Hill um, and I tried to get a, a letter out via the chaplain, I think it was at the time, um, um, to my solicitor to go to, um, to go to the Handy family and um, never heard anything back. Um, but I do, I do, you know, moving out to the kind of larger picture here, I think the restorative element of, of the justice system gets overlooked sometimes. Um, and I think a lot of healing could have taken place for myself and for, for, for Roger's family if that letter had got through and if, if things were a little different. From Amy Malloy's conversations with the Handy family, it would appear possible that they never got that letter. But John remembers some of what he put in it. I believe my, my opening lines of the letter were, um, you know where my life has gone since the accident, judging from where this letter is being sent from. It was a short letter. I didn't want to um, say too much. I wanted to just express what I had to express. That was when, around 2005, That would have been like about 05, yeah. Shortly after you went to prison for the bank robberies. Yeah, I believe it was about six months in, I think, um, prior, to my, prior to my sentencing. They did know what happened to you because I went looking in the archives and I, I dug out something that I wanted to show you, which um, is an old newspaper article from November 2005 in the Evening Herald at the time where Jane Handy spoke about your prison sentence and the guy in the picture in this article, I don't know, would you recognise him now? He's young, he's in a beige suit with a blue tie and you almost look like you're laughing on your way into, into court. Mm. It's a picture that haunts me. Different person. It's regretful, to put it mildly, to see, to see his wife saying that. Um, mm. So in the article, obviously you had at that point been called in court the polite bank robber and she basically made the point that there was nothing, nothing polite, polite about no. you because you never said sorry for so. Roger's death. 
She said that at the inquest, you uh, never went near her. His father shook my hand, but he didn't. The apology should have come from him. What I would see as the most important part of this um, still lies open. That November day took one man's life. That's where it all, all begins. And I'm not here to hurt you. So the first thing that hits you is, do I lie or do I tell the truth? I was up against brick wall time and time again. Your education doesn't mean anything in some ways. In other ways, it means everything. Pain begets pain. And trauma begets trauma. Did you know John O'Hegarty all those years ago? Maybe you worked in a bank and were one of his victims. If so, we'd like to hear from you. You can contact us at podcasts with an S at independent.ie. I'm Not Here to Hurt You was presented by Kevin Doyle. Series producer is Gareth Mulhall. Executive producer is Mary Carroll. Assistant producer and sound design by John Smith with additional sound recordings by Gavin Hennessy. A special thank you to Aoife Murphy, Shun Lennon, Paul Highland, Colin Brennan, Daniel Ruddock, Arlene Regan, Mark Hondron, Dara Kelly and our legal team of Fergus Foodie, and Thomas Turner. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash news forward slash helplines. Thank you for listening. At the Irish Independent, we don't just report the news. We tell the stories written all over Ireland. After all, each struggle, triumph, high and low, leaves a mark that lasts. Irish Independent, written all over Ireland.